0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. There's a lot of current events for Bishop to comment on, and on this episode, he breaks them down. Starting with the Equality Act, which recently passed in the House, then the Pope's historic trip to Iraq, and the Johnson and Johnson COVID vaccine. If you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future episode, you can submit it at redeemerradio.com/askbishop.
1: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop, and happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you, Kyle. Same to you. I was just curious, do you have any Irish blood? Uh, I don't think so, no. But I no? Sh- should I have said top of the morning to you? Top of the morning. Is that, is that,
0: and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, no, I love St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, I mean, it falls during Lent, but um, it's still such a... a you know, I just
1: have so many good memories of St. Patrick's Day through the years. My mom was supposed to be born on St. Patrick's Day, and she was going to be Patsy, but she was oh, born really? on March 19th, so her name is Joanne. After St. Joseph. That's correct, yeah. Oh, great, yeah. Isn't it great this week? I mean, we
0: have the Feast of St. Patrick today, and then, and then two days later, the Solemnity of St. Joseph, so... Yeah, this is a, a really special week. It's kind of a Lenten break
1: in a way. Yeah. I mean, is there something special about the Solemnity of St. Joseph during the year of St. Joseph? Is that like a double, like, are we supposed to feast <laughs> twice as much or something? Oh, uh, I think we should. Oh, uh, think there's no is-
0: nothing that we're supposed to do, but I think it makes sense to, especially, you know celebrate St. Joseph. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be at St. Joseph High School celebrating the Feast of St. Joseph on Friday, having Mass there, and I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Good, good. All right, well, do you have a, an opening prayer for us today?
0: Yes, I thought I'd do the prayer from today's Mass, from the commemoration of St. Patrick. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. O oh God, who chose the bishop, St. Patrick, to preach your glory to the peoples of Ireland, grant through his merits and intercession that those who glory in the name of Christian may never cease to proclaim your wondrous deeds to all. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of
1: the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Bishop. Uh, There's several things, actually, there's a lot of things that have been happening in the past couple of weeks in news. Thought maybe this episode could be a little bit of a catch-up, commenting on some of these things, and you know, we could go in any kind of order, but maybe one of the things is something we've talked about in the past, and that is kind of anticipatory of expecting that... That this would pass the Equality Act. Now that it's passed the House, the USCCB, I noticed, has a page dedicated to the Equality Act. And it says, the bill is well-intentioned, but ultimately misguided. The Equality Act discriminates against people of faith, threatens unborn life, and undermines the common good. So I thought maybe to start off with this topic, if you'd be willing to comment a little bit on the good intentions of the bill? Because we want all people to be respected, loved, and treated equally. That's correct,
0: you know. um, Human dignity is central to our faith. We want to make sure that uh, there's no unjust discrimination against people. And that, you know, I guess you could say one of the, the good intentions of the Equality Act is to protect people who experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria from discrimination. Mm -hmm. But what the bill actually does, and this is why we oppose it so much, is it really dismisses sexual difference, and and it falsely presents gender as only a social construct. This is very problematic because it will lead to discrimination against people of faith. Mm-hmm. You know, there'd be legal harm to, to those of us and, and our institutions who believe that marriage is to be between one man and one woman and who believe that we are created male and female and this is part of our nature. It's not something that can be changed. So, so while it purports to protect people, it really is an imposition of a view that we cannot accept, and I say it not only goes against our faith, but also right reason. So, if it's signed into law, now the Senate has not passed it, and mm-hmm. you know, so it's not law. But if it were, various things, um, you know, especially for our Catholic institutions, et cetera, we'd be accused of violating the law if we stand up for our beliefs about human sexuality and gender i mean the bishops in our advocacy here on this issue has pointed out some of the specific legal and social harms that that would result for example our catholic or faith-based charities like our you know foster care agencies shelters etc you know would be forced to give up to foster care or adoption to same-sex couples, which we don't do because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman and children that we, we would place with heterosexual married couples mm-hmm. would be punished for that and we'd probably have to close. I mean, that's already happened because of some state laws in various places. The idea of you know the gender issue being forced to... For example, healthcare workers or counselors being forced to support uh, gender reassignment surgery—you mm-hmm. know, things that not only would be against many of their faith, but also their professional judgment—you know, about even the the effectiveness of such treatments. There's also a fear. I mean, there is a risk in the Equality Act that tax uh, of taxpayer uh, funding for abortions. And also, healthcare workers who have conscientious objection to participating in abortion. You know, part of the problem of the Equality Act is that it would repeal, partially repeal the Bipartisan Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which we support wholeheartedly. That uh, and actually, it was bipartisan. It was passed with huge majority of Democrats and Republicans and of course uh, religious freedom is one of the founding principles of our country what you hear in the news or read in the news about the equality act and it's true about that that i think a lot of people resonate with although we're concerned about the other issues i mentioned mm-hmm. but the forcing of girls and women to compete against boys and men for in school sports uh, sharing locker rooms or shower spaces for example females you know, with biological males who claim to identify as women, you know, that's obviously very problematic. Right. The idea of expanding the de- government's definition of public places into numerous settings, for example, you know, some of our parishes, we have church halls and things like that, that where we host functions it might be wedding receptions or whatever. And, uh, the Equality Act you know, would, would say, well, if we offer these facilities for marriages between man and woman, we have to also let the facilities be used for same-sex marriage. That's just one uh, reception. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's another thing. I mean, there's so many problems here um, that we really are worried about it. The USCCB has been very strong in our opposition to the Equality Act. And, you know i think our voice needs to be heard we're the largest non-governmental provider of human services in the united states just think about the millions of people that needy people that we serve through our parishes our schools our hospitals our shelters our legal clinics our food banks other charities and we operate all of uh, these services in line with our core beliefs uh, And that includes our position on life, the dignity of the unborn, our beliefs about marriage, our beliefs about sexuality, you know, all that while we are serving the most vulnerable and serving the common good. And so we really do oppose this legislation. I think we have to continue to be vigilant, and hopefully uh, the U.S. Senate
1: will not pass the Equality Act. And on the USCCB website, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, it's usccb.org slash equality act. Uh, there's information from the bishops about this, as well as a call for action to tell your elected officials to oppose it. So people can find more information again at usccb.org slash equality act. Another thing that has been all over the news. And we mentioned, you know, prior to the trip, Pope Francis went to Iraq. So I don't know how closely you followed along with with that.
0: Yeah, you know, I was really, really interested in uh, following it. With my schedule, it's a little difficult. Sometimes it was only late at night when I would get to read about the trip or see some of it on TV. Personally, my brother-in-law was just deployed to Iraq a uh, hmm. few weeks ago. Not my brother-in-law, I'm sorry, my my nephew-in-law. It's my, my niece's husband. I had their wedding this past July. Uh, my niece had been deployed to Iraq two years ago and was in Erbil, which is one of the stops on the Pope's itinerary. But her husband is recently is also in herbal, and that was one of the stops. Uh-huh. Uh, so anyhow, that's just a personal part. But but even from the very beginning of the trip, I mean, it was a very successful journey for the Pope. I mean, so many positive uh, reports, not just from the Christians, but even from the Muslims. Yeah. And I thought one of the, I mean, on the first day, which was, I believe, March 5th, he was in Baghdad. And I was really moved when I read about his visit to the Syriac Cathedral, Syriac Catholic. I, I think it was our last episode, perhaps, where we talked about the different uh, Catholic uh, churches in. Uh, We talked about the Syriac Catholic Church, and we talked about the Chaldean Catholic Church. The Chaldeans are the largest Christian group in Iraq. But the Syriac Catholics are also in union with Rome, just like the uh, Chaldean Catholics. So the Syriac Catholic Cathedral in, in Baghdad, Our Lady of Deliverance, sometimes they call it Our Lady of Salvation, back in 2010, 48 people, Christians, were martyred. I think we may have talked about that. Militants uh, belonging to a group that was linked to Al-Qaeda laid siege to the church. They detonated explosives. They shot people. And 48 Catholics died, and more than 100 were wounded. Among the 48 were two priests. So I thought it was significant that the first place that Pope Francis visited after visiting with the civic officials was the syriac catholic cathedral where where 48 had been martyred and it's they have photos of the dead uh hanging over the altar including a three-year-old really the 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 catholic population in iraq has was really decimated after the islamic state militants um took over parts of the country and in that cathedral they used to have five thousand syriac catholic families Now it's no more than a thousand in the Syriac Catholic community in in Baghdad, and and those thousand families don't all go to the Syriac Cathedral. There's three other Catholic parishes in Baghdad. So anyhow, on March 5th, the Holy Father uh, met with the the bishops of Iraq and a representative group of priests and seminarians and religious catechists from not just the syriac catholic community but the chaldean catholics the armenian catholics and some latin rite catholics and he spoke about the memory of the 48 uh, martyrs and also the many other christians who were killed during the past decade and he talked about um, how christians are called to bear witness to the love of christ and these these christians bore witness Uh, through their martyrdom. When the Pope was in the cathedral, the Syriac patriarch, the Catholic patriarch, uh, welcomed him. And and he said something that I thought was very beautiful. He told the Pope that the, the 48 mixed their blood with the blood of the Lamb and showed their oppressed, killed, or uprooted brothers and sisters in Iraq and the Middle East that the Risen Lord continues to walk with his people. Besides the Syrian Catholic Patriarch, the uh, Cardinal of Baghdad, who is a Chaldean Catholic patriarch, told the Pope that the Syriac Cathedral and its martyrs are a powerful sign of what Christians throughout the country have endured and survived over the past decade. And one of the things the Pope said that I thought was that stuck with me is he said to the to the group, and this was a prayer service, it wasn't a mass. He said, we know how easy it is to be infected by the virus of discouragement hmm. that at times seems to spread all around us. Yet the Lord has given us an effective vaccine against that nasty virus. It is the hope born of persevering prayer and daily fidelity to our apostolates. So he was basically encouraging the people that they have this vaccine of hope and that they can go forth with with strength and share the joy of the gospel and despite what they had been through. So I think it was a message of hope and... Um, it was just very beautiful. I don't know. Did you get to read about that or see any of that, Kyle?
1: I, I skimmed a handful of articles, but uh, I hadn't heard that. I like that analogy and yeah. and obviously very relevant to <laughs> to today as well yeah. as we you know talk about viruses and vaccines. But, yeah, I think hope being such an important thing for anybody who's going through the, the persecution, the difficulties that especially those in Iraq have, have gone through. Yeah. I thought that was a, a great
0: start to the Pope's journey. And the next day, which was March 6th, he began with a, a what would be considered a low-key meeting, but it actually probably got the most press of anything during his visit. And that was, he met with the leader of the Shiite Muslims mm-hmm. in Iraq, and he had like a... 45 a minute meeting with him private the Ayatollah Ali Al-Sistani very influential leader 90 years old he doesn't normally meet with people and and he he lives not far from or you know where Abraham came from in a uh, town called Najaf or a city called Najaf i think it's important to realize why this was important more than 60% of Muslims in Iraq are Shiite Muslims. The Shiite Muslims are the majority in Iran and a couple other countries. Worldwide, the biggest number of Muslims are Sunni Muslims. Um, Worldwide, Shiites are a minority. They are less than 15% of the Muslim community, but but they're a majority in Iran, they're uh, a majority in Iraq. There was this separation Early on in in the history of religion of Islam, there was this split between Shiites and Sunnis. There was a dispute on who would lead the community after the death of Muhammad. And the Shiites believe that Muhammad designated his son-in-law, Ali, to be his successor as the leader. And Ali, Imam Ali... That's how the Shiites refer to him. He's buried in Najaf. And so that's a sacred city for Shiite Muslims. It's a pilgrimage site. And the Ayatollah al-Sistani, who who the Pope met with, lives near that shrine. And that's where the meeting took place. And it was really interesting when the the Pope arrived at the, the home of the Ayatollah, the aides to the Ayatollah release doves in a sign of peace. Yeah. That was a really dramatic gesture. Now, when we hear, hear the word Ayatollah, we think of um, perhaps the Ayatollah in Iran, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Hmm. And it's a political office in Iran, whereas in Ayatollah in, in Iraq al-Sistani doesn't believe that his spiritual role should give him a political office. That's an interesting difference. But when Ayatollah al-Sistani gives speeches or whatever, they often do have political ramifications. For example, when the Islamic State militants were on their offensive, the Ayatollah urged Muslims, all Muslims, not just the Shiites, but also the Sunnis, to join forces to defeat the Islamic State. Also, significantly, Ayatollah al-Sistani supported the rights of Christians and other members of minority groups and religions to live in peace in the country. So, Now, this outreach or this decision of Pope Francis was important. I mean, you know how much Pope Francis has tried to create a good relationship with Muslims. Mm -hmm. If you remember the famous document a couple years ago that he signed with the sheik Ahmad al tayeb the grand imam of al-Azhar, who was a a Sunni Muslim sheik, they had a meeting in Abu Dhabi two years ago and signed a document on human fraternity and interreligious dialogue. So this is a continual... Effort of Pope Francis to to create good relations. And and re- Muslims in the region, Muslims in Iraq and beyond Iraq, they were very positive about the Pope's visit. And um, there was a lot of praise. I thought it was significant, too, that Ayatollah al-Sistani gave a statement after the Pope visited, affirming his concern that Christian citizens should, in Iraq should live in peace, mm. should live in security, and that they should have full constitutional rights. And uh, Pope Francis obviously thanked al-Sistani for raising his voice in defense of, of the Christians. So even though that was private, it had a a major impact, I would say. Yeah. And then after that, Pope Francis, you know, 10 miles away, visited the archaeological site of of Abraham's birthplace, the the city of Ur, UR. And there, again, it was an interreligious gathering that took place. And the Pope called on the representatives of the country's religious communities, and they were all represented there. He called upon everyone to denounce Violence And especially all violence committed in God's name, that everyone should work together to rebuild their country. And, and he says that the greatest blasphemy, Pope Francis said against God, is to profane his name by hating our brothers and sisters. Hmm. And he said that hostility and extremism and violence, they're all betrayals of religion. Very, very strong. And then he talked about Abraham, of course, and, uh, and that very same day, the Iraqi prime minister declared that day, March 6th, a national day of tolerance and coexistence in Iraq. It's kind of amazing, Pope Francis's stamina, because two, after those two events, <laughs> he went back to Baghdad and celebrated Mass in the Chaldean Catholic Cathedral of St. Joseph. So on March 5th, he was in the Syrian Catholic Cathedral for a a prayer service, but now he had this public mass in the Chaldean Catholic Cathedral in Baghdad, which was his, I think, the first time that he or maybe any pope ever celebrated the Eucharist in the rite of the Chaldean Church. I'm not sure, Hmm. maybe Pope John Paul or Pope Benedict did, but it was the first time that Pope Francis did. Now, he said the prayers in Italian, but then the Chaldean Patriarch prayed in chaldean which is a a modern form of aramaic really interesting yeah it's a modern form of the language that jesus spoke and then the readings were in arabic and the, the iraqi president and the iraqi foreign minister were both there at the liturgy of course they're they're muslims but they came to that mass in saint joseph cathedral and at that mass the pope reflected on the beatitudes of jesus and uh seemed very appropriate because, you know, the people there had had suffered so much and were poor in spirit, Uh, blessed are the persecuted, all of that really, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek. So the Pope was talking about how this is their call, the call of the Christians in Iraq to imitate Jesus by living
1: the Beatitudes. Very, very appropriate, I thought. So it seems like things were very peaceful, and he was being welcomed in these different communities. Was there any protests, any violence, any threats that you're aware of?
0: Not that I'm aware of. The only criticisms that came in the press were the fact that he went to begin with uh, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Like at St. Joseph Cathedral, people were wearing masks, et cetera. There were a lot of people who greeted the Pope, especially on this next day, March 7th, and they weren't socially distance or wearing masks so so there was criticism of that okay. yeah
1: well what kind of impact do you think that it might have on the people of Iraq or is there anything specific that you think we can learn about this visit f- as Americans oh yeah
0: i think i think it had a very positive impact on um, catholic muslim relations mm-hmm. i really do and i think it was also I think, a shot in the arm for the Christians in Iraq. I think it brought the attention of the world to what the Christian community had suffered. And I'd say that happened really on the next day, March 7th. -hmm. And I was really looking forward to this visit that he had to Mosul and to Karakash. We talked about those on a previous episode. And I think one of the most iconic images of his visit, it's actually a, a photo in last week's Today's Catholic a memorial prayer, and the pope is there standing in what was the church square. It's called the church square in in the old city of Mosul. And he's standing there amidst the rubble and bombed-out remains of four churches that were destroyed by the Islamic State militants. And it was standing there where he paid tribute to the Iraqi Christians who endured persecution and even death so the four churches that are in ruins uh one was a syriac catholic church another was an armenian orthodox church syriac orthodox church and a chaldean catholic church so he's in this square with the rubble of these four churches the ruins that are i think they're under reconstruction but they were all destroyed um by the Islamic State. So I was glad he went to Mosul several years ago when I was in Rome for, um, and I I met Pope Benedict at an audience I sat next to, the uh, Archbishop of Mosul. And that was shortly after Islamic State took over and his archdiocese was basically emptied because people were being killed or they escaped. So he came to talk to Pope Benedict about it, so so I kind of know, you know. I remember I talked with him for about forty five minutes before the Pope's audience, and I learned so much (laughs) about the suffering of the Christians in Mosul. Mosul is a city north of Baghdad, about two hundred fifty miles north. It really was devastated, and um, Islamic State controlled Mosul for three years, really terrorized the people. Many were executed, kidnapped, raped. Women sold, they blew up major landmarks, uh, churches, they destroyed libraries, museums, and so many lives. So I was glad the Pope went there. Many of the Christians left. There was one priest who greeted the Pope when he was there in Mosul and said that before... uh, 2014, his parish had 500 families, and most have left the country. But since um, the liberation, 70 families have returned. The rest they're too afraid to return. So, so we see how there are some Christians remaining, but really the population of Christians has really gone down. Mm-hmm. So that you know, the Pope privately visited the ruined churches after the prayer service, and then he took a helicopter. To about 20 miles away to Karakash. This is a majority Christian city that was also devastated at the hands of the Islamic State, and less than half of the people's inhabitants have returned since they were driven out by by ISIS. It was in Karakash where we saw the largest crowds when the pope visited. They lined the streets. Of course, there was concern about security, so the Pope wasn't in his Pope mobile. He, he used an armored vehicle. but he he would he made the driver slow down and he put his window down because he wanted to make sure that the people could see him and he could wave to them. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was really very dramatic when he was the bells of the Syriac Catholic Church, uh, one of them that had been desecrated by Isis, and then had been a base for the Islamic State fighters, the Syriac Catholic Church of the Matthew Conception there. The bells were ringing as the Pope arrived. Of course, much of the city of Karakash needs to be rebuilt. Um, But the Pope was really strong. He said, as he was there, he said, terrorism and death never have the last word. So there's kind of a rebirth, the triumph of life over death. It was interesting, there were some Muslims and Yazidi followers who, who who came to the church also and the pope said it's important not just to restore our buildings but also restore the bonds of community mm-hmm. uh, in karakash he also thanked the international organizations especially catholic ones that helped refund reconstruction of churches and homes and schools the syriac patriarch catholic patriarch also specifically thanked the knights of columbus Huh. for their financial aid in the rebuilding of Karakash, another Catholic organization that aid to the church in need. So anyhow, that was another important thing. Now, if that wasn't enough, going to Mosul and Karakash, he then went to Erbil. And there, he. this was really the last major event of his trip to Iraq. He had mass in an outdoor stadium, and there were about 10,000 people at the mass, Erbil is the capital of the Kurdistan region in northern Iraq. Interestingly, there are a lot of Syrian refugees in Erbil and hundreds of thousands of displaced people, especially Christians from Mosul. They went to Erbil or they left Karakash and went to Erbil. There was a statue that they had restored from a parish that where the Islamic State militants had decapitated a statue of Mary and cut off her hands. Right. So they restored it. They reattached Mary's head, but left the hands just dangling there. That was there at the Mass, and the Pope blessed the statue of Mary with incense. I think the main message of the Pope to the uh, people attending the Mass was, was not to try to enact revenge, to forgive. Of course, that was the Christian is the Christian response. Since that was his last major uh, event, because he was going to fly back to Rome the next morning, he did tell the people in the stadium, he said, Iraq will always remain with me in my heart. Uh, And he just asked the people to work together in unity for a future of peace and prosperity, not discriminating against everyone, calling everyone to work together from different religions or no religion then as i said returned to rome the following
1: morning well that was great i i i've, I've gotten bits and pieces of it but it was nice to kind of get the whole timeline and and understand what all happened there and it's it, i think it's amazing that everything went so well and it was peaceful and people seemed to be very welcoming you mentioned some articles over at today's catholic and people can find those if you go to todayscatholic.org And you can just search for Iraq, and it'll pull up the articles about his visit to Iraq. So again, that's todayscatholic.org. And if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll talk about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine some USCCB meetings and CRS Rice Bowl, and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
0: Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
1: Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about various current events and one thing that came out earlier this month is a statement from yourself, Bishop, about the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine. Can you update us on that? Yeah, it was a joint statement from
0: uh, me and Archbishop Nauman, me as chair of the Doctrine Committee and Archbishop Nauman as chair of the Pro-Life Committee. And uh, I also did a, um, a follow-up like two days later, a video message that went national, and uh, Basically, because now we have three vaccines approved for use in the United States, and we wanted to make sure that um, everyone understood that it was morally permissible to receive these vaccines. Some were questioning this because of the connection to abortion, and I think we answered those questions very well. There was also a statement I really would like to call listeners' attention to, a statement from pro-life catholic scholars Mm -hmm. on the moral acceptability of receiving covid19 vaccines and this group of pro-life catholic scholars is uh is called the ethics and public policy center they're leading pro-life catholic scholars and they all agree with the usccb myself as doctrine chair and the vatican that it's morally acceptable to receive any of the COVID-19 vaccines that are currently available. Mm -hmm. That this acceptance of a vaccine does not in any way endorse or contribute to the practice of abortion. That is really important. And none of these vaccines in any way shows disrespect for the remains of an unborn human being. And I think... um, You know, there's a lot out there, especially on social media. There, you know, the the cells from which uh, these vaccines were developed, the cell lines, there's no, I mean, it has to be very clear there's no ongoing use of aborted tissue to generate these cells. It's really important. And, you know, when you look at the HEK293 cells, They're used all over the place. They're Mm -hmm. commonly used for testing processed foods produced by all kinds of companies, Kraft, Nestle, Cadbury, others. You know, the great majority of processed and packaged food products Mm -hmm. that are sold in the United States likely contain ingredients produced or tested in the HEK-293 cells. Mm -hmm. You know, and other things, pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, Almost everybody is, is using products that were developed through the use of these cells, including these vaccines. Now, at the beginning, should they have made use of four decades ago of uh, tissue from uh, aborted babies? No. But here we are four decades later. It's a scientific fact. And this is something because of some people saying the opposite. There are no fetal body parts present in these immortal cell lines. Mm -hmm. These cell lines are artifacts. They're biological products that have been modified and reproduced many times over. They're not body parts in any meaningful or morally relevant sense. And this does not contribute to or promote abortion. The abortions from which the cell lines such as HEK 293 were derived happened decades ago And there's no further fetal tissue used or needed to maintain these lines. It was not right to begin this process. We've been very clear on that. Now, the babies that were used in this or the baby was not uh, aborted in order to get their tissue for these cell lines. That's Mm -hmm. important to know too. But still, it wasn't right to use the tissues. Now, some pro-life advocates choose to say they don't want to have anything and they want to bear witness. So that's really up to their conscience. Mm -hmm. They don't have to. We said that. But at the same time, it is morally permissible. And some may prefer to take the Pfizer or Moderna rather than Johnson & Johnson because Johnson & Johnson actually used the cell line, its production, its manufacture, the vaccine, whereas Pfizer and Moderna used it in just the testing. The pro-life scholar says that's really morally ir- irrelevant, although, you know, it might be preferable for some. So I think the moral analysis is is there. I mean, it's traditional Catholic teaching. So I just want to reiterate, or recommend people to to check out this statement, not only the USCCB my statement, but the pro-life Catholic scholars, which came afterwards, because I thought they gave a very good explanation. And you can find that, I think, I don't know if you have it on, on uh, any website, but it's the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I don't have the information, but I think if you did a Google search, it was signed by by uh, scholars that I, I greatly respect, like Professor of Law Carter Sneed at Notre Dame, and he's the director of the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture, Ryan Anderson. Robert George at Princeton. I mean, there's just a lot of Father White at the Angelicum, a lot of well-known pro-life leader, leading scholars who, who share this uh, analysis.
1: Yeah, if you do a Google search, it'll come up, and the website is eppc.org. So Ethics and Public Policy Center, eppc.org is their website which I wasn't familiar with them before you pointed that out, so I appreciate that. Yeah, they're really good. All right. Well, another thing I guess we can mention is last week you had some meetings for the USCCB, for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I I was in front of my computer
0: screen hours and hours. We had Doctrine It's your favorite thing, right? Oh, my goodness, Zoom calls. (laughs) We had, um, well, first of all, my Doctrine Committee met and then for several hours then we i was i'm on the committee on religious freedom we met for a few hours then two days of meetings of the usccb administrative committee which i'm on and and then on thursday i hosted a meeting of theologians from various theological societies catholics for a discussion of the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si on care for our common home. So there was a lot I had, but it was good. Regarding the administrative committee, I I just want to point out, Kyle, I don't know if you saw it, we issued a pastoral message marking the one-year anniversary of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was March 11th when the World Health Organization declared it to be a global pandemic. So it felt we felt that it was important to say something about it especially i mean we've you know well over a half a million deaths uh, in the united states and i think it's approaching maybe 600,000 and worldwide the death toll more than 2.6 million people have died so it was really important we talked in our statement about the various hardships besides all these deaths the the economic hardships, the struggles that people have had, the separation, isolation, all of those things. And so Archbishop Gomez, in in the name of our administrative committee, issued a public statement and, and talked about this. And, and not only all the suffering, but also the acts of sacrifice and acts of kindness that helped ameliorate, in many ways, some of the suffering, especially the sacrifice by healthcare workers and first responders and people who work in homeless shelters, um, grocery store workers, so many acts of kindness. So that kind of, he expressed gratitude and, and also to all of our priests and deacons and religious and teachers, et cetera, who've ministered to God's people. We also had a very strong statement that richer nations and pharmaceutical companies should work together to ensure that uh, vaccines are available all over the world, not just in wealthier nations, but that no nation should be left behind, no person left behind. Because as we know, there are poorer nations, et cetera, where they really don't yet have access to the vaccination. So that's a concern of the Vatican. It's also a concern, a moral concern of of the U.S. bishops. And, you know, we can ask ourselves, what have we learned from this global suffering, and hopefully greater solidarity among people throughout the world.
1: All right, and we are out of time, but uh, we were gonna talk about the CRS Rice Bowl. Just maybe a reminder that that is available online. You could do, search for CRS Rice Bowl and and do it digitally if you're not doing it physically this year. Um, Also, your visit to St. Joseph High School, the prayer service is gonna be live streamed Yes, the prayer service is uh,
0: after the mass. I'm going to do the a short talk on Saint Joseph and and the and pray the litany of the uh, of Saint Joseph in the chapel of Saint Joseph High School. So uh, that's going to be live streamed to all of our schools. It'll also be live streamed through the diocese. So everyone,
1: I welcome you to do it. I'm also doing it in Spanish. All right, great. So if you look up on YouTube or Facebook, Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend. You can find it there, and before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing, Bishop? Sure, the Lord be with you.
0: And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.